Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Jim Estill, who is a well-known local businessman and philanthropist. In his life, Estill has been a successful entrepreneur and investor and innovator. He's built a number of successful businesses, and in 2015, he brought Guelph-based NB appliances back to life. But the thing that made Estill a figure of national prominence has nothing to do with business. Through Estill's generosity, hundreds of Syrian refugees have made a new home in Canada, and now he wants to do it again for 50 families fleeing the resurgent Taliban in Afghanistan. What prompts one man to do this much heavy lifting? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. So flashback to 2015 for a moment. The Syrian civil war was the front-burner geopolitical issue. Refugees were crossing the Mediterranean by the thousands, and European countries were tearing themselves apart about what to do with them. Meanwhile, in Canada, it was the time of the 2015 federal election. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, then the leader of the third-place party, made a bold promise. If elected Prime Minister, he would welcome 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada. During a campaign where Trudeau's predecessor Stephen Harper was stuck having to explain something called the Barbaric Cultural Practices Hotline, Trudeau's sunny ways were a breath of fresh air that people were looking for. One of those people was Jim Estill, who was watching the humanitarian situation half a world away and felt compelled to act. He put up $1.5 million of his own money and said that he would sponsor 50 Syrian families. He rallied local aid organizations in Guelph like the Salvation Army, the Welcome and Drop-In Center, and the Guelph Muslim Society, as well as numerous churches, social service organizations, and businesses to help. And in the end, nearly 500 Syrians were resettled in Guelph and area. For his efforts, Estill was recognized with an Order of Ontario, an Order of Canada, and an honorary doctorate of laws from the University of Guelph, and that, as they say, was that. Or it was until the Americans announced that they were pulling out of Afghanistan and a new refugee crisis was created in the wake of the Taliban retaking the country. Last week, Estill announced that he now wants to help bring 50 Afghan families to Canada, and this week, he is going to talk all about it with us. So this week on the Guelph Politicast, Jim Estill joins us to talk about when he decided that he wanted to help more refugees, what the process to bring refugees to Canada looks like now, how COVID-19 has changed those things, and why it might take a while to start bringing people from Afghanistan to Canada. We will also talk about his experiences with the new Canadians he sponsored, how many of them he still keeps in touch with, and what he thinks about the people who push anti-immigrant sentiment. And finally, we will discuss his ethics as a businessman, how he feels about all the positive press he's received, and what sort of help he'll be looking for when people start arriving from Afghanistan. So I caught up with Jim Estill earlier this week via Zoom. Well, Jim Estill, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. Let's get right into you know what we're here to talk about, um, which is you've announced your intention to help uh, 50 Afghan families uh, come to Guelph. And uh, it is, I guess, one way to look at it is a sequel to uh, a project you've done before. But I mean, uh, what what kind of went into your decision, you know, to to uh, to help the, the 50 Afghan families? And, um, you know, what was your kind of thought process? 
Well, you know, it's really like uh, helping the Syrians. It's a, it's a humanitarian crisis on a massive scale. And so my thing is, well, what, what small piece can I do? And it's within our capability. Um, we, as you know, agreed to originally sponsor 50 Syrian refugee families. Since then, we've gotten to over 500 um, Syrians. So we've continued to sponsor it and even have more coming in over time. So we kind of have the methodology. I will say 50 families is still a daunting job. You have mm. to round up a lot of volunteers and well, it's everything from meet them at the airport to uh, find an apartment, to furnish the apartment, to get cutlery, to you know, get the kids registered in school. There's so many things to do. It's just what happens. Can you talk a bit about the, the red tape, the process, you know, when, how do you get from, I'm going to sponsor 50 families to when you meet, the, meet them at the airport, you know, what, what does that process look like? So as you point out, there's a lot of government paperwork we fill in. So we fill in government paperwork and prove that we have the money to provide the support uh, because this, we do it under private sponsorship. Um, we have to put that on deposit. Um, and then we hurry up and wait. With, and the government has to do background checks on everyone. There's health checks before people come in. Then the government arranges transportation. And then the government eventually, they keep us somewhat informed, but they eventually say to us, um, you know, your applicants are arriving at nine o'clock or whatever on uh, Thursday night. And then we arrange to have people pick them up at the airport. Uh, the process can take a year or nine months or two years. It can take a long time. So I do not know when we will start getting our um, Afghan refugees. It could be, but it could be very soon. The crisis is now. Um, the other thing is we, are, are, we only deal with refugees. And a refugee, mm -hmm. by definition, is someone who's not in their country of origin. So we're not trying to airlift them out of Afghanistan right. and, and can't safely return. And we focus on families. Um, and we're trying to focus on uh, families that are most at risk largely because they help the Americans like mm -hmm. uh, translators and people who were uh, helping NATO troops. They're on uh, a Taliban hit list. Um, to some extent, educated people are also on the hit list. Um, the Hazara population, that's a visible minority in Afghanistan. Um, it's about represents about uh, 15 or 20%. We're basically trying to, save those people who are very unsafe if that makes sense yeah i'm curious so it, it's it's like you fill out the paperwork you wait for the call and it could be literally like hey that family you sponsored is going to be at pearson at you know 7 a.m tomorrow just so you know <laughs> well so that we had a little bit of that when we did the syrians mm -hmm. they've gotten much better and now we are usually getting a week's notice uh, okay. um, so we get a week or 10 days notice um it that which still isn't uh, a lot now we have to deal with covid so we have to say okay where are we bring what's the quarantine all of that kind of stuff um and uh, I don't know yet, but I think that the uh, everyone arriving will be vaccinated. I think that's going to be the rule, but I don't I don't yet know all of that for detail. So that'll help a little bit, but I think there's still likely to be a quarantine. And even then, it's going to be temporary housing. We always move people into temporary housing for a couple of weeks while we find permanent housing. So we don't have the situation where we're renting uh, um, 
townhouse and find out that they don't arrive, you end up paying rent for mm-hmm. three months because, as I said, it's an indeterminate time frame. I kind of alluded that, you know, saying that this was a sequel to your earlier generosity with the Syrian refugees. But it is kind of like that, too. You are kind of the producer. You are fronting the money. You are helping to coordinate things, but you're not like helping them day to day. So, I mean, it's one thing to say you're going to sponsor 50 families, but what kind of community support does one need? Like, you know, it's, you know, it's not just enough for you to say, I'm going to do this. You need the community. So, like, what does that look like? Yeah, so... Our, our process for every um, family we sponsor, we need five mentor families. And the five mentor families have checklists of set up a bank account, register the kids in school, get a bus pass, ride the bus with them, get a doctor, get a dentist, um, test the parents for ESL, um, get the parents in ESL school if it's appropriate, um, get resume writing, get job coaching, um, get the help with the jobs, and of course, find the apartments, furnish the apartment, get the cutlery, get the pillows, blah, blah, blah. So the, the mentor families have those um, checklists. And then we also have scorecards. So every two weeks they have to report back and say, um, you know, the family's doing fine or the 14 year old needs uh, uh, help with ESL or uh, tutor, blah, blah, blah. And so we have to have a lot of volunteers in addition to those mentor families, because there's other stuff to do. Like we have a team that tries to get some uh, donations of, uh, you know, like Adidas last time donated a bunch of gear, uh, Baffin boots donated work, uh, work boots, which is awesome to have work shoes because many, you can't go work in construction unless you have safety shoes. So um, we try to round, we're going to try to round up those types of donations and even orchestrating uh, moving into apartments and, uh, moving furniture and stuff like that it takes a lot of volunteers. Now, Danby, um, my company, Danby Appliances, we uh, often do use, you know, Danby truck and, uh, and my staff are, are greatly on board and help, help a lot, but it's a lot of community volunteers. Last time we had 800 volunteers. So that's a, uh, it's a reasonably big scale. I was going to ask how many volunteers it takes to uh, move uh, 50 people uh, or 50 families into the community. It, you know, it's again, I'm forced to do math in my head. So is that, I guess that's 100 is one. It's about six, 16, it's about, uh, yeah. six to six, 16 per family that we move in. Yeah. Um, but the other key with this is we're helping people through a hard time. It's not like saying you're going to volunteer at the food bank, which is an ongoing thing, which is, you know, forever. We're right. helping people come in, set up a life, help them get a job, help them learn to help themselves. As soon as we make fa- contact with the family, we send them an email saying, learn English. Here's some free resources, Duolingo, watch YouTube, uh, blah, blah, blah. And because as I said, sometimes you've been sitting there for a year when people mm. arrive, they will have greater English skills. And we communicate with them along the way saying, how's your English? And your English has to be better. And I don't care whether you think you speak English, your <laughs> accent's still, still not good enough. And uh, it, it really helps. At the same time, we have to talk down expectations because people, right. um, it, they often think, oh, Canada is the land of milk and honey, I'll just come in and they'll write me a check and there's money falling from the skies. And it's like, 
when you come to Canada, you will start at the bottom, you'll work your way up from the bottom, you'll have to it'll work very hard to live a modest life. Now, of course, people are willing to do that because the alternative is to live in a refugee camp um, or get shot and bombed right. and, yeah. and, and stuff like that, right? And of course, like a lot of these people are coming in with enormous faculty for, for self-sufficiency, uh, just out of necessity, you know, living in a refugee camp or you know, the, the journey they took having to escape dangerous places in order to survive. That, that is absolutely correct. Um, I, I think we, what, what I found is people are very hardworking and, uh, and they want to make a better life. And because I only sponsor families, they want to make a better life for their family. Um, so they're motivated. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, you, you, you interact with, the people you bring over, some of them even work, uh, still work at your, your facility at Danby Appliances. So, you know, what have you kind of learned from the people you've helped sponsor? Like, you know, in ter- just maybe even just generally like life experience, you know, what have, what have they taught you along the way? Well, uh, I learned the secret of happiness mm. from, from my refugees. And the secret of happiness is to be grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost, and not ungrateful for what other people have. And as a Canadian, you can learn from that yeah. because you might be um, upset that you lost your job and or you're upset that you lost your whatever, and you're upset that the neighbor has a nicer car than you. At the end of the day, satisfaction it, it and, and tied to that is all about gratitude. If you're grateful, you will be happier in life. So that's what I learned on a high level. On a low level, I learned that learning English is really difficult. <laughs> and especially if you're 45 years old, it's, yeah. I'm telling you for kids, anyone we bring in is under 10 or under 12, they'll integrate no problem. The kids will speak English. It works really easy. If you're 45 years old, sometimes you, you, you will all, almost always have an accent when you speak and, mm-hmm. and it can be very difficult. I mean, I thought learning English was easy, but I was kind of young when I learned it. <laughs> English can be hard for some native speakers to speak. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Getting getting back to some of the like the higher level lessons, though, and I was thinking about this over the weekend uh, as I was waiting for today so we could talk. The anti-immigrant factor, which drives so much hatred. I mean, you're talking about things like be grateful for what you have. You know, don't be mad at someone, the guy next door, because he has a job and you don't. And I feel like so much of that is encapsulated in the anti-immigrant movement with people like saying like, oh, they're coming for our jobs. They're coming to replace us and all these like incredibly disgusting things. Um, I was curious what you think of all that when you hear when you like encounter these things like on social media, in, you know, talk radio the various places it bubbles to the surface. What does, what do you think when you hear that stuff? Well, a lot of it, some of it is founded in fear, mm-hmm. but the people that we're helping are fleeing the same people we're afraid of. Mm. They're fleeing the Taliban and they helped the NATO troops. So we should be more welcoming. So I actually think there'll be less anti um, Afghani sentiment than there was with the Syrian um, refugees. Um, as far as jobs go, the interesting thing is there's a shortage of people to do the work now. There isn't a shortage of jobs. There is an unlimited number of 
entry-level blue-collar, what we would call bad jobs available. Mm. If you're willing to work at Tim Hortons, if you're willing to um, uh, work in uh, construction, if you're willing to put roofs on, if you're willing to paint houses, if you're willing to um, uh, work in a factory, there's an unlimited number of jobs, so many that I sometimes don't even send some uh, refugees to some jobs because I don't think they're great jobs. Um, But just look around at the the help wanted. So we're in a really fortunate situation right now. I could see more resentment if there was a shortage of jobs, but Mm -hmm. there's not a shortage of jobs. There's a shortage of people to do the jobs. Now, when we bring people in, we also focus on people, say, success for us is people working, speaking English, some degree of integration. And so we're saying, if you're capable of working, you need to get a job. You need to contribute to society and you need to pay your taxes. So I have zero tolerance on cheating, zero tolerance on laziness. And uh, you have seen a lot of refugees who will take jobs that you don't want to do. I don't imagine you want to work at Cargill. But you walk through Cargill, it's a bunch of uh, recent immigrants, largely, and uh, they're willing to do the job and you're willing to eat the chicken because you want to eat, right? And then a lot of those people end up going out and creating their own jobs as well. That's oh, the flip side of it. Oh, oh a- absolutely. They, they, they create their own jobs and then start hiring other people and they just become part. My, my other experience is Canada always doesn't like the current wave of immigrants. Mm. And if you and if you go back in history, Canada didn't want the Irish. We certainly wouldn't want Italians living next door. We didn't even want the Hungarians. We didn't want the Vietnamese. We didn't want uh, the Jewish people. But what happens in a decade, like if, if you said, no, you've got Italian background or whatever, it's like, oh, okay, well, uh, you're Canadian. That's what you think, right? Um, so I'm convinced within um, a decade or 15 years, uh, people are just going to say, oh, well, okay, great. You're uh, it's probably not even going to say Afghani. You're going to say, oh, you're, you're uh, Middle Eastern, just right. like all the, other, uh, all the other people. We do spend a lot of time on respect. And uh, um, I, I mean, and you, I, I think it's proven out that the refugees are highly respectful and they're not doing drugs and they're <laughs> not breaking, you know, they're not doing graffiti and they're not, uh, remember we talked to them about that when they're renting a house. Cause often we end up having to guarantee, uh, you know, last month's rents or damage deposits and stuff like that. And it's like, you are going to be the best tenant. You are not right. going to make too much noise. You are not going to, um, you know, smoke in the apartment. If that's the rules, you're not going to, you're going to obey the rules. And, uh, and they do because it's tough love. And, uh, and there's gratitude. I, I mean, you would be pretty grateful if you were expelled from Canada and, and, and you're going to Russia and someone came in and said, yeah, we'll, we'll help you through your first time in Russia and show you how to ride the bus and where the grocery store is and, and whatnot. So you don't have to live under a bridge. Yeah. And I, I was going to mention that, 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 that is definitely a factor in all of this too, is that you're not going to mess up um, your opportunity at a better life by, Infract like even small infractions like smoking where there's no smoking. <laughs> oh, that, that's right. That, that's ex- that's exactly right. That's ex- exactly right. And, and I also make it that it is you are representing all refugees. Mm. A- and so it's sort of like if you were traveling with a Canadian flag, 
I'd say, uh, you know, like, let, let's add them, you know, like, be, be respectful, don't make Canadians look bad. Um, and whatnot. And most people will rise to that and say, yeah, you're right, I want to make all refugees look good. What I learned from the Syrian project was, we brought in 50 families, and then we kept on bringing in others. The other uh, ones we've, that followed, most of them were family of the ones we already settled. Mm. So most of the Afghans that come in, they're going to have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins that also are in a hard spot. They're going to want to help them come to Canada. And so, again, it's like, okay, uh, Adam, I'm going to give you, you know, if you do a good job here, then I will... Uh, you know, I'll consider sponsoring your brother, but I'm not going to sponsor your brother if you if you've proven that you don't if you're lazy or whatever, right? Right. It. <laughs> I hate to say it though. That almost. I mean that that seems very. Um. I, I don't know that that, that it, I I think it sort of bothers me a little that we put all these expectations on you. It's not just you are a refugee. You have to be sort of like the perfect refugee. Um. And, and well, I realize that a lot of that is that's that's not on us per se, but I mean, that is sort of a projection to that one Afghani is sort of representative of all Afghanis or one Syrian is representative it, of all Syrians. Well, it, it is a lot on their shoulders, but it's not an unreasonable expectation. And mm. to tell you the truth, it's the same expectation I have of you as a Canadian. Mm. And, and so I don't want you as a Canadian to start doing something that makes Canada look bad. So that looks all Canadians look bad. So the next time I'm traveling somewhere, not that I'm traveling anywhere because of COVID, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that they say, oh, you're from Canada. We don't want you. It's one of the advantages that, that we've had, like Danby is a Canadian company. And I've had that inter that advantage internationally when we're selling in the UK and we say, oh, yeah, Danby's a Canadian company. They say, oh, yeah, Canadian, you know, you're right. you're, you're, you're a good uh, you're a good country. Oh, you make good products. You, yeah, yeah, we'll look at your products. So we we play on the fact that we're Canadian and, uh, and whatnot. So it's, it's not dissimilar to the uh, burden on your shoulders, Adam. Don't make right. Canadians look bad. <laughs> <laughs> I do what I can. Uh, I do want to poke a little at your psychology a little. Um, there's a kind of a famous movie where the villain in the end is upended because he can't define business, business ethics. And I'm wondering about you because there are a lot of men who have way more money than you do, but are spending it on rocket ships and yachts and, and things of that nature. You're spending your spare change getting people out of you know, dangerous situations. What drives you with, I mean, granted, you are a very privileged man, but you don't have the resources of a Bezos. Jeff Bezos could probably airlift everyone out of Afghanistan. So what, what, you know, what's your psychology? What makes you act where people with more resources than you maybe don't? Well, the key is I'm eccentric and I have an, <laughs> and I have an eccentric view on wealth. And that is you want a certain amount of money because that is security. I don't want to have to live on the street. And I'm worried in my old age, can I, you know, I want to live in a, where someone can help me or whatever. But right. beyond that, it's just a number in a bank account. It's stupid to not give away above that number. Um, the other philosophy I have on living is I live a lifestyle which is comparable to what any of my Danby employees could live if they, you know, work for the same number of years as I do and live a similar. So, so I, I just 
I don't want to have a second home because mm. I, I have enough problems <laughs> keeping my own eavesdrop clear. Um, I, I don't want to have a yacht. Um, I have a perfectly good boat. It's called a canoe and I love it. Um, it's a perfect, <laughs> and, and same thing with a car. It, my car is great. It gets me from point A to point B. And uh, the fact is uh, no one's probably targeting it to steal it right now. I'm not that worried about it. I mean, it's, but so I, it's my eccentricity. Um, I'm inspired by um, Voltaire said, your regrets in life will, being the, will be the good that you did not do. Mm. And, and I do not want to have regrets in life. Um, when I lived in New York, I went to a public lecture that uh, was done by a rabbi who was a Holocaust survivor. And he said what made the Holocaust worse was good people standing by and doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm a good person, I stand by and do something, then I've done something to help. And, and but I don't deserve anything like the credit of the people that helped during Holocaust because I, I mean, you get a little bit of, uh, you know, hate email and whatnot, but it's, it's, I, it's not like I'm going to get shot because I'm uh, helping in this situation. Right. As a business person, I also believe in taking on challenges that are the right size. So 50 families, that's the right. I know I can do that. And after I've done 50, I'll try to do another 50 more. So I can do that. And I, but I, I would love to solve the Taliban. Mm. Like I, I, I'd love to airlift everybody out of Afghanistan that helped the uh, Canadians and the Americans. I'd love to, but the fact is I can't. So what is the piece I can do? I'm also inspired to help people through a hard time. I like that rather than um, just helping keep people on a hard time. So I do support a lot of the homeless initiatives. But the fact is, if you gave every homeless person a, a home, you probably don't solve homelessness. It, it, it just, it, it persists. Um, where in this situation, what I've seen is you bring people in, you help them for a, a little while. And then next thing you know, they bought their own car and paid with it for it with their own money. And they've moved into a nicer house and they've uh, got a better job. Um, if they have the right psychology and they're making life a success for themselves and their families. A lot of that though, is like kind of the, the even, I guess the even plateau that a lot of refugees are starting from. It's like, they're kind of all refugees for the same reason or relatively close to the same reason. Solving homelessness is a bit bigger because a lot of people are homeless for a lot of different reasons, but that, 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 I, no, it's no. a matter of scale. No. Uh, no, 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 you're you're absolutely right. Like it, to some extent, my philosophy: I like to teach a man to fish, not uh, not just give him fish all the time. But you're right; there are some people in society which you need to give fish to because they simply have mental health issues, uh, drug issues, they, they, and they are they will always need some support. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm helping people through, and it's very gratifying because you see people who've lost everything. I mean, mm. people come here with, I, I've had people come here with a tiny suitcase with like a change of clothes and that's their life is what they're carrying in their suitcase. And then these people show you pictures of their previous house and say, oh, I could live in that house. It's the same as my house. It's like, and yet they lost everything, including their job references, including their university degrees. 
because we don't recognize it. You ha- oh, great. You're a doctor in Afghanistan. You're not a doctor here. You're right. going to need to go to school for another seven years to get qualified. What else might you be willing to do? Do you want to become a medic or like, how are you going to, um, what are you going to do? So it's, it, it's just like if you, if you got shipped to a different country where, oh, you don't have any reference. I can't call your previous boss to say whether you're a, a hard worker or not. And, uh, uh, and no, we don't care what degrees you have. That's, uh, we can't check the university anymore. I don't think a lot of us think too hard about, you know, what it's like to fill one small bag and run for your life and leave everything you've ever known behind. And I think that's when we're talking about the, the negativity and all that about bringing refugees to Canada. I just, I just, I I try to picture that sometimes like, well, what would I throw in a small bag to leave everything behind? So here's the way it would happen. You yeah. would put every put everything in your bag, Adam, and then you get to 401 and Highway 6, and you would get pulled over to checkpoint. And they would go through your bag, and they would say, well, those are nice shoes. I'll take your shoes. Mm-hmm. And, and then you'd get to another checkpoint at Highway 25 and the 401, and they say, oh, that I actually like your your uh, your suitcase. I'll take your suitcase. Here's a garbage bag to put your stuff in. And then you get to the next one. And so by the right. time you come to Canada, it's like, okay, here's one dirty, uh, torn up t-shirt. Um, <laughs> some people do get through with a little bit of stuff, but you sure as heck don't get through with uh, any money or gold or jewelry or uh, anything of value. Um, and even nice clothing is uh, taken from you. Mm. I mean, that's the kind of thing you get from, you know, you the, the kind of stories you would only hear from interacting with people who have been refugees. Um, but, you know, for the several hundred people you've already helped get settled here, um, do, do you stay in touch with them? Do a lot of them, you know, stay in touch with you? Uh, yes, I stay in touch with a number of them. I don't stay in touch with all of them. We, we do have an email list. So we send out an email once in a while, <laughs> often when we need things. So we say, oh, we're, we need kit dining room tables. Anyone have an extra dining room table? And, and I will tell you, the refugees are very uh, willing to help if they can. Um, Unfortunately, COVID has meant we haven't had as many events as we used to have. We used to have mm-hmm. potluck lunches and stuff like that, but of course we're not having those. But I definitely am in touch with some of them. And as you know, some of them work um, in the Danby uh, factory. So I do have some of them. And some of them work in the Danby office. I have a great IT person who is a refugee. I have a, um, one of my accountants now is uh, also uh, a refugee. The flip side to sort of your own sort of business ethos and and the way you've sort of given back, the flip side of it is you've also gotten a lot of recognition too. You've gotten awards and doctorates and and things like that. I realize that's not the reason you do the things you do, the reason why you help 50 families emigrate, because I mean, that's a, a Herculean task that you do for you know, the humanitarian aid factor. But I mean, looking at the other side of this and when you're collecting accolades and awards and things, um, I mean, how do, I mean, does that even matter at the end? Like, how do you feel when you're get, you know, you're being awarded with things and people talk about how awesome you are? <laughs> oh, well, to tell you the truth, it's a little bit humbling or uh, like it's like, it, it's kind of like me saying, Adam, I've decided to give you a, uh, uh, an award that the Humane Society award because you didn't kick 
your dog today. Like, <laughs> Does it come with it, money? <laughs> exactly. It's a little bit like that. Um, now, that said, at first, when we did the Syrian project, I did not want any press. I even told the reporter who called, no, I don't, I don't want to comment. And they said, well, we're going to print the story anyways. Now I've changed my mind. I do want the press. And the reason I want the press is it makes the government more open to allowing us to sponsor more people. It makes the pop, the public more willing to help us. And it, and quite honestly, to, to settle even 50 families, I need to find 50 landlords who are willing to rent to us. Mm. And I, if someone listened to your podcast, they might say, yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to rent to, uh, to them. And, and 50, <laughs> I mean, it's, Adam, if I said to you, go find 50 places to stay, and by the way, we're kind of tight on budget, you'd have a hard time finding 50 places to stay. So now I like the press because it allows us to get things and it allows us to get the volunteers. So it provides leverage. So it does serve a valid purpose. And and for that matter, it also keeps sentiment. um, It it keeps sentiment more positive towards what we're doing, if that Mm. makes sense. Right. I do find it interesting. I mean, a lot of us see the the coverage as in praise of you personally uh, for, the, for yeah. the work you do. But I mean, it also puts a face on this. Like, here is somebody doing something, which opens up a lot of that red tape, which tends to be faceless. I mean, even when it, you know it's the new government of Justin Trudeau and it's the shiny, happy face of Sunny Ways, um, it's still a government bureaucracy that needs to be act in a more humane way. Well, see, this is part of the problem with our, our society and our press. They always say it's one person. You right. even earlier in the interviews, oh, Be- Bezos. Well, Amazon is not Bezos. Amazon, like there, there's a gazillion people, right? right. Working at, at Amazon, but they, everyone always likes to focus on the one. And I will freely admit, I don't do most of the work. I've got <laughs> 800 volunteers. My assistant works tirelessly at this project. Actually, for this one, I did decide uh, finally for this one, I I am taking one of my Danby employees and she's going to work full time on this because I just found when we did the last part, well, basically my assistant was working full time and didn't have time to do anything else. And it was just too <laughs> much, too much of a drain. Um, I do believe in volunteerism, but at some point just orchestrating 50, uh, it's 250 mentor families, orchestrating that is a uh, it is a lot of work and, and a full-time job. Well, I'm going to wrap things up here by asking you to put a call out in terms of like, is there anything you you need right now? Any kind of help you need? Any kind of donations? You know, what's what what kind of help do you are you looking for right now? So, what I need right now is I need um, volunteers, and we're compiling a list on. And basically, if you say, "Oh, I'm willing to drive," I'm willing to uh, assist. We can use volunteers. Um, I, I, we actually don't want much stuff yet, but we will need, um, we do, I'd love someone to donate new pillows, new mattresses, new car seats. Those are things which we can't you we can't take used. And then we need uh, all of the household effects, which are you know, pots and pans and uh, bowls and dishes and cutlery. We probably we have space for that. We don't have space for all the furniture right now. And as I said, it's going to be nine months. So I'm going to do another. I'll, I'll get back to, to you. We'll do another one in <laughs> nine months when when we need the call out to be, you know, look, we need dining room tables for uh, 50 families. Right. All right. Fair enough. 
Well, Jim Estill, thank you so much for your time today. And although it's not about you, thank you for all the work that you do. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Adam. You have a great day. And once again, that was Jim Estill. As you heard there at the end, stay tuned for a call out for assistance. As Afghan refugees begin arriving in Canada for now, I will just refer you to Estill's blog at jimestill.com. That's J-I-M-E-S-T-I-L-L.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Jim Estill. And this is just a reminder that there is currently an election on, in case you hadn't heard. To listen to interviews with the candidates running in Guelph, you can tune into Open Sources Guelph, which you can find on the Guelph Politicast channel every Monday. And for interviews with candidates from Wellington Halton Hills, tune into special editions of the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast on this channel on Saturdays. And that is it for this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram. And you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time. <laughs>